0: When I first saw the numbers up there, I thought, wow, he's really sending a message, only two psalms. <laughs> and then he said, oh, well, there's the one in the front, so, you know, uh, oh, okay, it's okay, well, then he cut out all the songs, at the you know, verses at the end, so, okay, <laughs> message received. <laughs> uh, i kidding with you, <laughs> I am glad to be with you. We're going to be in Mark chapter 5 this evening, Mark chapter 5. Uh, It is a, a stunning scene that has just unfolded in the first 20 verses of Mark chapter 5 where Jesus is on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee and he has healed a man who is full of demons, a demon that is Named the Legion, and caused this man to uh, be locked up and held in the tombs because no chain could bind him in the city. And he would throw himself in the fire and cut himself. And Jesus comes over and heals this man. And the response of the city was to send Jesus away. They come out to Jesus and they say, You need to leave. And it's a startling, startling response that people give. And Jesus now crosses back over to the western side of the Sea of Galilee in verse 21. And as he is there, one of the things that the Gospel of Mark highlights all throughout is that wherever Jesus goes, there are crowds. People are always thronging around Jesus. Mark's Gospel wants you to see over and over again wherever Jesus goes, there are lots of people crowding around Him. And the first thing we see in verse 21 is as He gets out of the boat, immediately here comes this crowd and you can imagine them all swarming around Jesus as He gets out of the boat. And interestingly, here is a person who now comes into the presence of Jesus. And you read that he is a ruler of a synagogue. And so I would suppose you wouldn't have high expectations of this man. Being a ruler of a synagogue would certainly put him in the category that we would expect him to be in opposition to Jesus. That he is somebody who has perhaps come to test Jesus, somebody who has come to oppose Him or give Him trouble or to test Him or something of that nature. But rather than coming as somebody who would be an enemy of Jesus, we see this man come before Jesus. And it says in verse 21, he falls, or verse 22, he falls at the feet of Jesus and begins to beg Jesus. Just picture the scene with all of the people surrounding Jesus. Here is a ruler of a synagogue, Jairus by name, falling at the feet of Jesus and begins begging Jesus, saying, I have a little daughter that's at home and she's about to die. And I need you to come to my house and heal her. And you can just see this father. He's not a ruler of a synagogue at this moment. He has no concern for position. He has no place for pride. He doesn't care about who sees him. He doesn't care about the audience and the crowd that's in front of him. He is simply at the feet of Jesus and He is just begging Him. I have a little daughter that's at the point of death. If you just come with Me and you lay your hands on her, I know she'll be well. I find it fascinating that there's no record of what Jesus says. Jesus does not give Him a test, does not ask Him about His righteousness, doesn't ask Him what He thinks or anything about who He is or anything of the matter. It just says... Jesus responds by going with him. And I just want you to imagine as Jesus and Jairus are now going toward this man's house, we're told, verse 24, a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. If you can just imagine this mass of people moving down the walkway as they're trying to make their way to Jairus' house. Huge crowd, it says numerous people and the way Mark pictures it thronging you can just imagine the circle of people who are just constantly around him as they're walking and going and as they are making their way with all of the great crowd thronging around him and all of the people and you can imagine all of the buzz as everybody's talking about we're going to go to this guy's house and we're going to see this this little girl get healed you ought to come along and follow here we're going and we're going to see this happen We're told about another individual. Whereas a woman here in verse 25, it says that this woman has had a disease, a physical ailment that has caused her to have a discharge of blood for 12 years. Now, in looking at Leviticus 15, you will note that by having a discharge of blood for 12 years, she has been unclean. She's been an outsider then. She's not allowed to participate in the normal functions of the community because she's unclean in all of that. And so she's not allowed to be going up and touching people. People are not to be with her because of this flow of blood. And she has absolutely nothing going for her at this moment. The passage tells us in verse 26 that she's gone to a bunch of doctors and all they've done is make life worse for her. She has seen them and has suffered much under their hand. She has spent all that she has at these doctors. Verse 26 says, she's worse for it than if she'd just kept to herself. She's spent every dollar she has. She has nothing left to give. She has no more money. And she is in an absolutely hopeless and helpless situation. No healing inside. No doctor can help. And no more money to try to look for another solution. But she does have one thing on her mind. We're told there in verse 27, she's heard about this man Jesus. She's heard that he's in town. And he, she's heard reports about what he can do. And she decides within her heart, if I could just simply find a way to touch His garments. She knows she'd be healed. If I could just somehow get access to Him. And remember, wherever Jesus goes, it's a throng. It's a mass of people. Wherever Jesus is moving, there's all kinds of bodies all around. But in her mind, she goes, this is my last chance. This is my desperate moment. Jesus is in town and if I could just get my hand on him, if I could just simply touch him, I know that I would be able to be healed. And it says then what she does is in finding out that he's there and the crowd that is thronging around him, verse 27 says, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment please note that she does not come to the face of Jesus and make her request I have a flow of blood can you heal me her mission in her mind is to sneak in and sneak out to come in behind Jesus reach through the thronging crowd and get a hand in there touch Jesus and just slide back out of the crowd and go on back she doesn't want to engage him It's interesting she doesn't come up to the front and stop the crowd. She doesn't say a word. She doesn't raise her hand. She doesn't say, can I have your attention for a moment? It is a let's stealth slide in, touch Jesus through the crowd, and I'll just get right on out of here. And that's exactly what she does. She reaches through the crowd and she touches His garment. And the text says immediately she was healed And she felt that healing. She felt the flow of blood then dry up and know that she was healed of her disease. Immediately after touching Him, you can imagine her starting to back away and start moving through the crowd backward. And we're told that Jesus stops. He stops with all the crowd moving with with him. it says that he stops and turns around and says, "Who touched me? The disciples turn to Jesus incredulous and say, "Who touched you??" Everybody's touching you. There's a throng of people around you. I've a disciple and say, who's not touching you at this point? Everybody's touching Jesus. Everybody's thronging around Him. Imagine the crowds and the hands that are touching Jesus, the shoulders that are bumping into Him, the people that are just moving with Him as you've ever tried to walk through like Disney World and you're hitting in a crowd of people. Everybody's touching Him, but this woman touches Him and He stops and turns and says, who touched me? And I think it is interesting what we're told next. <clears throat> Verse 32, He looked around to see who had done it. Notice that Jesus go, you know, who touched me? And that's, it's like one second goes by. This is a crowd-stopping moment. He says, who touched me? And is waiting for an answer. He's just standing there. Who touched me? And the disciple's like, everybody touched you. But he's not moving. Who just touched me? Because the text tells us something absolutely staggering. He perceived that power had gone out of him. How do you even quantify that kind of power? How do you even quantify... The amount of power that Jesus possesses, that when the woman touches him and she's immediately healed and she feels it, he perceives power's gone out. Who touched him? Verse 33 And the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling. and fell down before Him and told Him the whole truth. Jesus stands there and says, alright, who touched Me? I'm waiting. Who's the one who touched Me? And imagine this woman. And she's terrified. Now why is she terrified? friend? she's terrified because she's unclean. She shouldn't have touched you. Major no-no. You shouldn't have done that. By touching him, you would have made him unclean. But what is so fascinating is she doesn't make him unclean. What you have is the Lord reversing it, and He cleanses her. And here now she falls to the ground, and it says that she just explained the whole matter to him. You can just imagine. Here, here she goes. She's on the ground trembling. I've had this form of blood for 10, 12 years and I've been to all the doctors and none of the doctors have been able to help and I'm completely out of money and all the doctors have made it worse. And so I thought, and we're going to be in town and I really just knew that if I could just simply touch you, I know that I'd be able to be healed and I'm sorry that I did it, but I just didn't know what else to do. He goes, he's just, she's just explaining the whole truth. Here's the whole story. Just laying it all out to him. Look at what Jesus says in Verse 34. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Be healed of your disease. Jesus has not stopped the show because He's trying to make her feel bad or to cause fear, but to exemplify the faith that she's just exhibited. What amazing faith that she has in her mind to think, I don't even need to talk to Jesus. I don't even need Him to say words. I just need to touch Him. Can you imagine that kind of faith? Just imagine what you think about this individual. That you think, if I could just touch clothing, that would heal me. I don't need Him to say a magic word. It doesn't even need to be His hands. Just touch the clothes. That would be good enough. And I think Jesus wants to exemplify that. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. You're whole. You've been made well. Your disease is gone. Impressive thing. But while we are here watching this woman, you can imagine all of the joy and the amazement of the crowd as Jesus has stopped the throng of people to a dressless woman who's now getting up off the ground. You can imagine her joy and the tears that she's wiping away is able to go on her way now. You might have forgotten what this account was really all about in the first place. And something tragic happens. Verse 35 says, while he was still speaking, Jesus is talking to the woman and telling her how her faith has made her well you go ahead and go in peace you're cured of the disease it all is good wonderful faith and while Jesus is still talking to that woman we're told that the ruler of the synagogue this Jairus one of his servants one of these messengers comes and says to Jairus your daughter is dead don't trouble the teacher any further. Here in the joy of this woman being healed, and you had Jesus, the healer, agree to come to your house, and you were on the way to your house, when the messenger comes up and taps you on the shoulder and says, it's too late. You might as well not bother. She's already dead of the teacher beating. You now, that's perhaps the worst news you get in the medical industry. It's too late. That's what he hears. The solution was on the way, but it is too late. How are you feeling at that moment? So close. Not soon enough. How are you feeling that the crowd has stopped because of this woman? I think my reaction would be, woman, you couldn't have waited another hour? I had something more pressing. My daughter was about to die. You've been dealing with this for 12 years. Shouldn't you have waited on your request? What are you feeling at that moment? What are you thinking? You hear the words, it is too late. You can just imagine the pain and the emotions just, just pouring over it. But notice verse 36, but overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And what are you going to do in that moment? Your messenger has told you, don't bother the teacher. There's no hope. It's too late. Good try. But it's not going to happen. Jesus overhears the conversation back and forth. You can just imagine seeing this conversation go on between the two of them. Jesus overhears it and just turns to Jairus and says, you do fear. Just believe. Now are you going to believe in Jesus? You know, it's one thing to think that Jesus is going to heal your daughter of a sickness. It's another thing when the daughter is dead. It's one thing to think we can take care of a disease, we can take care of a sickness, we can solve a fever, we can deal with whatever it is that is putting her at the point of death. But now she's dead, and now what are you going to do? Are you going to believe in the impossible and think, okay, he can do something about this? Because, by the way, you know, you see resurrections happening every day in the scriptures that this guy would have known. This would have certainly been plausible.
1: No, it didn't happen all the time.
0: You don't have resurrection, you don't have bringing the dead back to life. Are you going to believe? Or will you listen to the messenger and go, it's okay teacher. It was too late. Verse 37 Jesus tells all the crowd to stay here. We've had this whole throng of people and the reason they continue to be him with Jesus is not only because they want to be near him but obviously they knew they were on the way to Jairus house and now after Jairus says my daughter's dead and Jesus says don't fear just have faith just believe Jairus does just that and says alright let's go Jesus tells the crowd you all stay here In fact, He even tells His disciples to stay here. You'll notice in verse verse 37, only Peter and James and John are allowed to go with Him. Everybody else, stay behind. It's just going to be us five. We're going to finish the journey to Jairus' house. And you can imagine the walk. Oh, I'd like to know what they talked about. Did they talk about anything at all? Is the weight of the death just the tears of Jairus? Or is there anticipation? About what he hopes to have happen. Who knows what is going on on the journey as they make their way to Jairus' house? And we're told there, as they get there in verse 38, they come to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus sees a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. That's hard for us to understand. When it comes to funerals and death, we do the opposite. We go very quiet, we're very reflective. We're sullen. We don't express grieving emotions in weeping and wailing. And in particular, in that day and time, when you had a death, you would actually hire people to stand outside the house to weep and wail and make a commotion so that everybody would know what just transpired. In fact, the Mishnah says this, even the poorest in Israel Do not hire less than two flute players and one wailing woman. Even the poorest are going to have at least three people outside, one wailing and two playing instruments, to let everybody know that something terrible and grievous has happened. And that's what Jesus is walking up to. It is a commotion. The point is, it is death. This is not, she passed out. This is not, well, we don't know. She's not in a coma. She's not just struggling to breathe. She's dead. And everybody knows it. These are the funeral people outside the house wailing because the little girl has died. And that's why when Jesus walks up in verse 39 and says... Why are you making a commotion and weeping? She's just sleeping. He's challenging them. Because they're proclaiming death. And Jesus is saying, You're not needed here. She's just sleeping. But how do you think the mourners and wailers took to that? Verse 40, They laughed at Him this guy like we don't know how to take a pulse Jesus she's dead we've all gone in and seen there's no breath we've put our head to her chest we've looked for any kind of signs of life Jesus she's dead you're crazy what is the matter with you how dare you come in here and say something like that that is completely insensitive and rude to say oh she's really not dead she's dead and notice verse 40 he throws them all out of the house (laughs) <laughs> they don't believe out you go <coughs> she puts them out of the house and took the child's father and the mother and those who were with him and they went where the child was just imagine the, this little girl laying there imagine the father now made the truck back and there he, she is seeing her dead for the first time <coughs> It says in verse 41 that Jesus takes the hand of the little girl and says, little girl, I say to you, arise. Now friends, we've grown accustomed to reading the New Testament that we don't get shocked by this stuff anymore. Jesus is talking to a dead body. This is a dead girl, not a sick girl. The girl is dead. And Jesus speaks to the dead body and says, Get up. Verse 42 immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was about 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. He takes the hand of a dead body, says, Arise, and up the body goes. And she starts walking around like everything's fine. Verse 43 says, Jesus says, give her something to eat. <coughs> like carry on your merry way. And everybody's, what just happened? <laughs> what just happened? This girl was dead and she's completely fine. You can imagine everybody touching her and checking her. You're fine. And she's like, yeah, I'm fine. Absolutely amazing. The scene that's portrayed for us here. What I want to do is talk about the faith that is exhibited in these two scenes. It is interesting how Mark puts these two characters together. These two events in the life of Jesus. Because what you see being expressed... What you see being described as the necessity for being a follower of Jesus, to truly belong to Him, is that there is a need for faith. Notice how that was highlighted throughout the account. In verse 34, we see, Your faith has made you well. Not your righteousness, not because of who you are, or because you were troubled, or whatever. It's your faith that has made you well, he says. That's why you were made well. That's why you go in peace. Your faith. And Jesus does the exact same thing to Jairus after the little girl has died. Which by the way, before that we already noted Jairus has already shown a high degree of faith to believe that Jesus could come to his house and heal the little girl before she died. And now he shows even greater faith by continuing to take Jesus to his home. And even though she's dead, believe that Jesus can do something about it. Do not fear. Just believe. Just believe. And he does it. Faith is the big deal in this scene. I think it is so fascinating for us to observe that it wasn't about now how good you are. Let me get a long list of your, your requirements and give me you know your resume. Are you worthy of my healing at this point? It's just, okay. You want to be healed? Just believe. If you want to have this healing, if you want to have this cleansing, what you need is faith. They needed to believe in what Jesus could do. They needed to have such a depth of faith That they would believe that Jesus is able to heal, to cleanse, to solve their problem. That was the basis of everything. That was the critical thing. It's the thing that Jesus was always looking for as He moved through Israel. is looking for faith. Who is going to believe? Who is going to have the kind of faith that is required to be a follower of Me? Who will truly believe in what I am able to do? I submit to you that one of the things that we need to consider of what what Mark chapter 5 is showing us is that the basis of faith, how we get this kind of faith, where does that come from? That this scene of these two people, the woman and the man both, it comes from a desperation. That the faith that you see in them comes from the realization that they have absolutely nothing to lose. Did you see that with the woman? What does she have to lose at this point? She's gone to the doctors. She's out of money. She's hopeless and helpless in this scene. She is at the point that she's willing to do anything. The teachers in town... I'm going to go for it. I know I'm unclean. I shouldn't be alone in the crowd and I certainly shouldn't touch Him. But what do I have to lose? I have everything to gain and absolutely nothing to lose. There's desperation. Friends, you see that with the ruler of the synagogue. Why is he willing to come to Jesus? He puts himself on the ground, falling at his feet, begging Him, come back to my house. My little girl's about to die. Come back to my house. My little girl's about to die. And then again, the desperation of faith. Your daughter has died. Jesus says, don't fear, just believe. What do you have to lose? Nothing. This is the essence of what faith needs is that faith becomes what it needs to be when we absolutely finally realize that there is absolutely nothing we can do to rescue ourselves. That's the kind of faith our Lord is looking for. It's not looking for a person who comes up and says, Well, I'm a pretty good person, so I think you ought to do some things for me. You know, I'm not that bad. You know, I do some good things. You know, if you put yourself in the first century, I tithe, I, you know, do these good acts. You know, I'm not as bad as those tax collectors and sinners. That's not what he's ever looking for. What is he looking for but this kind of desperate faith? You are the only one that can heal. You are the only one that can save. You are the only one that can rescue. You are the only one that can give me hope. You are the only one that can help. These two people come to Jesus that way. The point is that we must have a spiritual desperation We must have a spiritual desperation. Friends, think about as the Gospel of Matthew opens. And it opens with a crowd of people around Jesus. And Jesus goes up on the mountain. And He sits down and He begins to teach the people. Chapter 5 opens and He's going to give these what we call Beatitudes. And the very first one blessed are the poor in spirit. This is the starting point. Desperation. Knowing who you are before God. That you have nothing to offer. That is what God is looking for. That's the start point. Poor in spirit. I am nothing before you. I have nothing to offer. Why would you have any grace or mercy to me in the slightest? Why would you care for me at all? I have nothing to repay you. I have nothing to be able to put you into my debt. What could I possibly do? That's exactly the heart that Jesus was looking for. You know, you see that in the failure of Israel when you read through the Old Testament prophets. Because what you see is a group of people who thought they were somebody. You know, well, we're we're valuable to God. We're the children of Abraham. God won't do bad things to us, he needs us. I love John the Baptizer. I'll make children of Abraham out of rocks. I don't need you like you're something that you're going to behold in God. Oh, you need us. Poor in spirit is what God wants. A heart that is willing to come before God and say, I'm absolutely nothing. I have nothing to offer. I have nothing to give. I have no hope and I have no way to help myself. It's it's why I love Romans chapter 5. While we were still weak or helpless, depending upon your version, Christ died. While we were still sinners, he also uses in chapter 5, he uses one more, while we were enemies. This is the poverty of spirit that is needed, a realization, I'm just a sinner. I've been a rebel before God, I'm nothing before you. I want to ask a question about this now. What keeps us from having that kind of faith? Why is this kind of faith so difficult? Why is having this kind of desperation before God so hard? Why is it such a challenge for us to be poor in spirit? To realize we are nothing before God and have nothing to offer and that it's not about us like we talked about last night. What's the challenge with that? There are probably a lot of answers to that, but I'm going to submit to you this, I think, is the real big one. Is that our prosperity keeps us from having that kind of desperation. I believe our prosperity keeps us from being that desperate before God. Because what happens is We surround ourselves with our little idols. We have money, we have jobs, we have careers, we have possessions, we have comfort, we have ease, we have family. I have all of these things to insulate me from life and we don't see our condition before God. We think we're okay. We're like the church in Laodicea. You know, here you are and no, I am rich. And I'm doing so well. And Jesus comes and says, you think you're rich. You are poor and pitiable and blind. You don't even see your condition. Yeah, you're doing great physically. You have material things. And it's caused you to be completely blind and not see your condition before God. I believe our greatest danger in our nation for us as Christians is that our overwhelming amount of wealth causes us to not need God. We are doing just fine. We're okay. And if my money runs out, then I might need God. Or if I lose my job, then I might need God. Or if I lose my family, then I might need God. But as long as I have my circle of idols around me to keep me comfortable and good, well, uh, you know, I'm not I'm not desperate. When God turns into the genie in the Lamb, and we only turn to Him when nothing else works. What else am I going to do? You know, I tried to solve all my own problems. I think it is so important for us to realize that we do have these idols that keep us from turning to the Lord. It's why Jesus gave this illustration in saying it is. Easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, and, and please don't bend that analogy. There is—if you've ever read somebody say uh, they wrote down, "Well, you know, camels got on their knees and crawled through gates that were called needles." That is utterly false, and there is no historical data. And when is the last time you ever saw a camel crawl on its knees? There's no evidence of that. that's the way we want to try to make it easier for a rich man to go into the kingdom of God. (laughs) He's using a hyperbole to draw a point right here. It's really, really hard for us to enter. Why? Because we aren't desperate for faith. We don't see Jesus as our solution. We don't see the need that we have. We have our stuff. We have our comfort. We have our entertainment. We have our cars. We have our homes. We have all of these things that we build up around us as walls. And we're no longer desperate for God. It is a huge warning to us that we must realize that there is only one answer for our lives. There's only one person that can heal our wounds. There is only one person who can cleanse us, make us whole. Or let me put it this way to fill the void that every one of us has in our lives. We do an amazing job. We have this void, and what we do is we try to fill it with everything we can possibly get our hands on. And so what's going to satisfy? What's going to fill the void? What's going to give me rest and comfort and peace? And so we buy a bunch of stuff, and we, well, that didn't work. And we buy Satan's lie and then Satan says, well, the reason you still feel that void is because you just didn't buy enough stuff. It wasn't the iPhone XR. You needed the iPhone XS. That's why you failed in not being satisfied and happy. It's because you bought the wrong car. You didn't buy a big enough house. You didn't get the promotion. You don't make enough money. We listen to these lies that we didn't go after it big enough so we go for bigger. And that's how we get ourselves in sinful trouble where we go, well, the reason why you're unhappy is because you're not married or because you are married or because you don't have kids or because you do have kids and we keep trying to go at it. What's going to be the thing? What's going to be the thing? There's only one thing. But our idols cause us to not see it. Only God can give the healing. Only God can fill that void. Only God can give you rest. Only God can give you peace. Only God can give you what your soul is satisfied and seeking and looking for with all of your heart. It was about a year and a half ago or so. If you remember, there were some soccer team boys who were over in some caves in Thailand and sudden summer rains came upon and just completely isolated those boys. If you ended up following any of that, you might remember some of the ridiculous things they were going to have to do to get out of there. I mean, just outright terrifying about, you know, you couldn't fit scuba tanks. Apparently the way the holes were going to be, you couldn't you know put a bunch of scuba tanks on the kids and send them all out. They were going to have to hold their breath for very long distances while somebody would guide them through the route to get out. Can you imagine how terrifying it would be? Here you are stuck in the cave and you're being told you're going to be underwater for a really long time and you're not going to be able to see but there's going to be this guy who's going to try to lead you and you just need to hold your breath and trust Him. That doesn't sound like something I would want to do. Why did every single boy do it in survive desperation what other choice do you have you have no other choice this is the way for rescue you see this is what God is doing with us we sometimes look at it and go boy that's going to be really hard yeah but this is your only rescue yeah there's a lot of stuff we're going to have to forfeit yeah but this is the way for life this is the way to be free this is the way to be able to be with God. This is the faith that you need when you trust God. To go that path, it is hard, it sounds dangerous, it is absolutely fearful, but that is the path we have to take. In fact, I want to point out that this would then be the ground for our faith. Faith is not about being fearless. Sometimes we get those things confused. We sometimes think because we're afraid, that means I lack faith. But you see in the Scriptures over and over again that there are people who are full of fear that are acting by faith. Faith is not the absence of fear. Faith is being willing to have that faith and act despite the fear. Think about Hebrews chapter 11. All of those people who by faith did all of those things. Are we going to suggest that they had absolutely... No reservations, anxieties, or fears whatsoever for everything that they would have to go through. I mean, it ends with being thrown to lions, sawn in two. It ends with amazing displays of faith. It's not about saying our life is going to be free of fear. Just trust God. You know, put it on a coffee cup. You know, that we we have these days, you know. uh, Stay calm and fill in the blank, like any of those fill in the blanks have ever worked, but we'll go and put them on our thermoses. (laughs) Stay calm and. No. But what you are seeing here is a picture that just because it's uncomfortable and just because it's not easy doesn't mean that that's not the path of faith. We are going to be afraid. Yes, it is going to be difficult. Yes, there are challenges that lie ahead. But friends, that's the way to rescue. And it's hard to not want to put all of our hope in our wealth. We want to store it up all around us. You know, you think about Jesus saying, you know, just give us this day our daily bread. Can you imagine if our refrigerators only had enough food for one day? I would panic. <laughs> one day, you know, when we get down to one week, it's getting a little unnerving. Hurricane comes, well, we're ready for a year. We've got, we've got it all just ready to go. It's so interesting to think about the idea of will you trust God no matter what? Or do we just insulate ourselves from it? Are we trust in ourselves? Really. We ultimately trust in ourselves. Are we really do take a step out and go no I really trust you what Jesus is wanting is that we would come to him and that our hands are just simply open before God and saying there's nothing I need but you I have no righteousness to offer I have nothing that I can do for you I have no self reliance so now what what am I going to offer God what can I give him I can make all the promises I want about all the things I'm going to do and I can still fail completely because I I will. Satan will still come after us. Temptations will still be there. We'll still sin. What are we going to offer God? And friends, this has taken me such a long time to get to. That's why I want to share it with you. That is exactly where God wants us. Where these two people are, well, we finally just get down on our knees and go, I don't have anything. And here's God going, finally. That's where I want you. Trusting me. Not trusting in yourself. But the only way to get there is we have to see our condition. We have to see who we really are before God, and then ultimately be desperate for Jesus. True faith. Faith like you see in Jairus, faith like you see in the woman at the Flutter Club, requires a desperation. It requires a realization of who we ultimately are before God. I invite you to think about where you are in that journey with God. Where are you in that? Are we poor in spirit? Do we really just come to Him broken and just say, you know? I'm a mess. I need your help. Lord, I need your salvation because nothing else is going to help me. Lord, only you can satisfy. I need contentment. Lord, you're everything that I need to get through this week, to get through this day, to get through the difficulties. Lord, I depend upon you. It's so interesting that it takes those times. I felt that way last weekend as we were at UF at Shams and roll grace off into the operating room and we just go downstairs and we sit in the waiting room. Now what are you going to do? Now there's not a lot of times in your life where you feel everything out of your hands. It's like why I like to drive. You think you have control, right? I like like the, the belief that I have some control over something. And here's a moment where you get that I have zero control at this moment. Lord, please keep her alive. Please make this happen. And it's in those moments I go, this is where I'm supposed to be all the time. This isn't supposed to be on an occasion in my darkest moment. That's supposed to be where I'm in every day. This is where I sit. I sit needing Jesus for everything that's going to happen today, tomorrow, until He takes us home. Can we help you have true faith? That's the faith He's looking for. That's the faith He's calling us to. We'd love to help you do that. It begins by turning away from sins. Can't have true faith if we're caught up in the things of the world. Can't have true faith if we're allowing the things of this world to entice our hearts and minds away from God. Turn away from sins. Get on your knees before God. Confess those things to God. Start new with Him with empty hands saying, I have nothing to bring but I need You for every moment of every day. As we saw in Hebrews 1, Lord, You're the reason why the world keeps spinning. You're the reason why I just took another breath a moment ago, and I need You for every moment going forward. True faith. Can you help you? will not you come while we stand to